you manage to get clear and make the hole big enough to squeeze inside to plant the explosives. However, it was still so small it was impossible to get in with our air bottles on our back. So the obvious thing to do was to take our bottles off, dump them, take a breath and pull ourselves into the hole underneath the boiler. Aquanaut. My adventures and misadventures in the early days of scuba diving off the Cornish coast. Written and read by me, James Wheeler. Well, our search for wreck continued along the, the west coast of Cornwall and um, this, this time, of course, we were using our echo sounder with the view that we might find some amazing readings, which obviously were the remains of steamships. And, um, of course, the, the echo sounder gave it a very accurate uh, replica of the seashore as we were going along slowly in the boat. And we did this quite a lot, hopefully, with the view of uh, finding a wreck. Well, we did this one one day, and um, we we came across uh, what was obviously uh, an indication of unusual topography, and it was too too regular to be anything other than uh, a wreck. So we dropped the anchor. And Bob decided to go over first because he was always the first number one diver and I was ready to follow. Well, Bob hadn't gone long when he surfaced and swam back to the boat and he took off his mask and he had a big smile on his face. We'd obviously found something worth salvaging. So he said that there was a big ship's boiler there and... Uh, I was to follow him down so we could reconnoitre the site properly and see what was worth salvaging. So I went in after Bob and we both dived down together and swam straight towards the ship's boiler. Well, I can tell you it was huge and uh, a big iron boiler, but what was the great uh, <coughs> sight was it was on top of the ship's condenser, a complete condenser with what looked like hundreds of copper pipes held together with two big bronze sections. So we knew this was going to be a big salvage operation and certainly worth going for. However, it was clear the only way we could do this was to do it with explosives. There was no possible way we could get the boiler, which was on sitting on top of the condenser, without blowing it away with dynamite or Semtex. So that was the next plan. So we both surfaced again and um, the Raymond had got the dynamite ready and um, Bob went down first of all with the dynamite and I went down with him and uh, we suddenly realised that uh, this was going to be a very difficult exercise. So we had to put the dynamite and some of the Semtex because we took a lot of explosives with us because the boiler was so huge. 
from your record, and we calculated that it would take a lot of explosions to blow this huge thing away, weighing several tons and about 20 feet high. The diameter of about the same, 20 feet. It was a huge iron boiler. So how could we get the condenser out? We would have to blow the boiler off the top of it. So we decided that we uh, plant the explosive, but that became impossible because the, the access underneath the boiler to get the explosives in was impossible. So we had to put the explosives in a safe place and then start clearing away debris and pipe and all sorts of bits of iron uh, and rubble to get underneath the boiler. Well, <laughs> easier said than done. It was very hard work and we had to go back up to the surface again with the explosives because we realised it would take two or three dives before we could clear a, a point of access to get the, underneath this boiler and plant the explosives. So we did three dives that day and on the, on the last dive we managed to get clear and make a hole big enough to squeeze inside to plant the explosives. However, it was still so small, it was impossible to get in with our air bottles on our back. So the obvious thing to do was to take our bottles off, dump them, take a breath, and pull ourselves into the hole underneath the boiler. So this is what we did. We planted the dynamite in such a way that the boiler was more or less uh, at a position where we, we, the exposure would be most successful and give the most impact. Uh, we planted the dynamite and some Santex and then uh, we went in with the detonators and uh, pushed them into the dynamite. I might add the only way you could do this was not using your flippers because every time you use your flippers you push yourself further in the hole. So we had to pull, pull ourselves in and push ourselves out again. We pulled ourselves in, holding our breath, and slowly but surely we were able to plant the explosives. We had just enough air in our lungs for holding our breath to do the job. And I might tell you when we got out, it was a relief to get back and get some air in your lungs because we were 50 feet down or more. And, uh, you know, it was not a very good idea to do that. Although, in fact, we've been trained to do it when we dived at the Sabacra Club when we did our training. But that was only in 10 feet of water, not 50 feet. And of course, in those days, we were very fit and we could hold our breath for some time. Um, the most I've ever done is three minutes. And uh, that was, of course, doing free diving. Uh, diving down to a wreck with just a snorkel. So I knew I could do three minutes. But that's not quite the same as working on the water. So I wanted to be sure that we could get out and push ourselves out fast enough to get back to our air bottles. Well, we did this, planted the explosive, and then I went back up to the surface and came down again with the fuse wire, uncoiling it all the way, and then bobbing back into the hole and connected the fuse wire 
uh, and a detonator to the to a dynamite. Well, we slipped the anchor, put Aquanaut in full reverse, reverse f- as far away as we could from the explosives that we planted, and then uh, climbed on board uh, to be safe, of course, and then touched the uh, the batteries with the fuse wire, and up she went. It was an enormous explosion with a huge bubble of water coming right out onto the surface of the water. And uh, it was a massive explosion. And we thought, well, if that hasn't moved the border, nothing will. So the next thing we could do, of course, was to wait. It was no good trying to dive immediately after the explosion because there was too much disturbance there and poor visibility. You couldn't see the effects of what we had done. So we waited a good hour or longer. And while we were doing this, it was Bob who noticed a boat about three quarters of a mile away, and it hadn't been moving. And uh, Bob reckoned he knew the boat. I wasn't sure, but uh, we were soon to find out that uh, what that boat was doing. So we waited over an hour and a half, I remember, about that time. Then we motored back up, dropped the anchor, and um, dived again, both of us, to see what uh, the result of the explosion was. While the visibility was almost zero, the explosion must have been so such an impact that it blew the boiler right off the condenser. And uh, you could just see that in the poor visibility that we had. But it would have been impossible to carry out any salvage that day to uh, lift the condenser, to break it up, and pull the pipes out and bring them to the surface for salvage. So we decided to abort it that day and come back the following day to uh, pick up the, um, the benefits of our work. So uh, it was difficult because uh, we thought, well, you know, uh, it's all that work done and we can't salvage it today. We had no choice though because we couldn't really see what we were doing. So we left disappointed that uh, we couldn't retrieve the, uh, the salvage that we'd found that day. Well, on the way back, uh, motoring back to Penzance, we got pretty close to the boat that was watching us, and Bob and I both recognised the boat, and we knew that one of the divers on board, they were local, well, not that local, but in fact, that we'd seen them around before, and uh, I reckon they were watching us. So anyway, we didn't say anything, and we passed some of that about... Uh, hundred yards from their boat and back into the harbour. So that's not the end of the story. The following day, the plan was to come out and retrieve the the uh, condenser and all the pipe, the bonds, plates, etc. from the condenser. And uh, on that second day, the sea conditions were not good. It was a rough old day. But we decided we can't... Uh, let this go and get out there and salvage it. So off with steam, got back to exactly the same spot. And uh, it was Bob who went down first and came back absolutely furious. Uh, He took off his mask and mouthpiece and showed it up. It's gone. It's gone, he shouted with a second breath. And uh, I couldn't believe this. So I, I dived in 
and went down and looked for myself and the condenser that was there was completely gone, it disappeared. The only answer to this was that it had been stolen. Stolen from the dive ship that was watching us the day before. Now I knew now who this was, but uh, I'd rather not mention it because he might still be around and he was a lot bigger than I was. So uh, that was the, 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 the uh, that was a waste of time and effort to retrieve what had been good pickings for us on the salvage front and we'd been stolen onto our very noses. And he could do nothing about it. So I want to make the point that even back in those days, in the, in the 60s, there were plenty of pirates around the, the coast of Cornwall. And uh, there's no love between pirates. So that was a hard lesson we learned, and something which we needed to remember. That we must keep our eyes peeled for this boat, and every time we went out we made sure that we weren't being followed because we knew now who it was. I want to make the point that it was not always easy to dive off the coast of Cornwall. I mean, there were many days we had to to not even consider it because the sea conditions were so bad. And uh, on that point, I want to uh, perhaps bring in here a little rescue we did in conjunction with the Penny Lifeboat, the Solomon Brown. I forget where it was. It might have been a weekend, I can't remember. But we had a call out and uh, it was a surprising call because we knew that the wind was blowing from the north and it was an offshore wind. Now, now an offshore wind normally means that the bay, Mounts Bay, is quite flat because it's offshore and it flattens the sea. But this was a real exception and uh, the wind was extremely, extremely strong. I would say 478 and uh, we got called out. The lifeboat, the Panid lifeboat, had already gone on the scene to the wreck of a, which was stranded on the rocks not far from an area called Long Rock in Mounts Bay, not far from Miles Island. So it so happened the lifeboat was already, already at the wreck and uh, we wondered why they wanted us. But they called us out because every time they, they shot a rocket uh, with a line on it, a rope on it, towards the wreck, the wind was so strong it blew the rocket away. So there was no way they could reach the wreck because it was shallow water and there's no way they could get access to the to the wreck at all other than to get a line across somehow and recover these, I think it was three men, stranded on the wreck. So we, we went out in our own boat, Aquanaut, and steamed out across the bay and rendezvoused with the Penalty lifeboat and uh, we drew up close to them and uh, they gave us instructions that we would have to split the line. The only way to get the line was to kit up and swim the line, take the line across through the heavy sea to the wreck. So uh, at this point I need to say the wreck was only about 50 feet long. She was iron and um, she was well stranded on the rocks there and would, would of course be in danger of breaking up. So we then steamed away from the 
for the lifeboat, got kitted up with a line and swam out through the heavy sea. We couldn't snorkel, the wind was too strong, we had to use our breathing apparatus and swim out towards the wreck, right up to it. And then the fun begins. We had this rope towing behind, and of course towing a rope of some length in the, in the sea is not easy. It gets heavy. You have to pull very hard to get the rope across. And when we reached the, the starboard side of the, of the wrecked boat, and uh, tried to shout up and communicate to the three men who were on board, and we soon realised, Bob in particular realised, that in fact they were Irish, and uh, they didn't seem very compassmentous. In fact, they were drunk as lords. And it was obvious that they had arrived on this rock, finished up on this rock, through poor navigation or being drunk, and finished up on the rocks. And we felt fed up about this because uh, there we were taking risks to retrieve these three men who were so drunk out of their minds they didn't know what time of day it was. Anyway, one of them took the line and uh, attached it to the, the, the stern of his boat. So he must have had enough sense to do that. We got back to our boat Aconaut safely and uh, we stayed for a while hoping that um, the, the plan was that the lifeboat then would attach a uh, smaller line, a bigger line to the line that was already there and pull it along with, with a, what they call a ring and so they could attach a more powerful, stronger rope to the boat, the direct boat, with a view of pulling it off and uh, putting it off the rocks. But that wasn't possible. And uh, to be frank with you, we didn't hang around to find out what was going to happen at all. We decided we had enough. The sea was very lumpy, and it was, it was a very strong wind, and we decided it was getting late in the afternoon or early evening, so we abandoned it and went back to harbour. What the outcome was of these three men, I can't remember and I don't know to this day, other than the fact that they were drunk. And uh, I was cross because they were putting the lives of the Penny lifeboat and, of course, us as divers uh, into a situation which was completely unnecessary uh, because of their own bad, bad behaviour. And uh, you know, there's no excuse for it, but that, that's what happens at sea. And uh, you know, we were there to help when we could. Well, we had the idea that we needed to search further afield for wrecks, and uh, it uh, was obvious to us that we needed to, to dive in, in the places where most of the wrecks would be found and where the, the worst reputation for shipwrecks was on the coast. And uh, we decided to do this one, one day on good weather. And uh, one such place, of course, is the infamous Runnelstone. Uh, not far from Land's End. Well, I say infamous because it's a renowned place for many wrecks and a m most notorious place to dive. Now, the Royal Stone 
was a pinnacle of rock that at one time projected about six feet above the sea. And uh, I say at one time because in 1923 the cargo ship called the City of Westminster struck the Randallstone Rock and knocked about six feet off the top. So from that day on it was not visible from the surface and clearly a greater hazard to shipping. Well, um, we decided to go out there and uh, see what we could find. And by the way, the the uh, city of Westminster was a big ship. She was 6,000 tons and uh, she struck the rock, according to the story, in, in heavy fog. Uh, about 20 yards of the crew were saved by local fishing boats and lifeboat at the time. So uh, fortunately, there's no loss of life. But she was a big ship, 6,000 ton cargo ship. It's some ship, I can tell you. Well, we knew the presence of the city of Westminster at least. We also know that there were lots of other wrecks on the Rundlestone. Now, before I get into this dive, I want to mention the point that the Rundlestone, I said, is infamous for one reason only more than anything else. Not just the fact that the pinnacle of the rock that's still but not far beneath the surface is dangerous, but also that it had a reputation for having the most dangerous tides. Now, if you can imagine the Holder Mount's Bay, which is a huge area, about 100 square miles of, of sea, on a, low on a low tide, spring tide, when that bay empties, it runs out past Land's End at the rate of eight knots plus. So that is a current of serious speed, I can tell you. And the whole of the bay empties. So we realised that the only possible time that we could dive on the Ronaldstone was to calculate the, the, the tide when it was slack water. In other words, between the change from low water to high water. And the calculations on the charts indicated that this time was only about 35 minutes maximum before you, the tide would turn again and the tide would come in and start filling Mount's Bay again with the same rate of knots and speed that occurred when it was exiting from, Mount, from the Mount's Bay. So my point is that our dive window on the Runnelstone was very limited and uh, we calculated this and uh, that was our plan to go out and dive on the Runnelstone and start searching for wrecks on a neat tide or, or a low, low spring tide when uh, there was no dangerous current. So we set off on this day. It was, in fact, I remember a low spring tide that we were going to dive on. And it uh, took about uh, two and a half hours to, just to uh, motor out to the area. The um, area is called Tolpedon, and uh, there are markers on the coast to indicate to shipping exactly where the wreck is because you have to line it up with a, a Trinity House buoy which had a bell and a whistle on it not far from from the reef and so we knew roughly where the reef was but when we got there we soon realized where the reef was because the ground sea and the swell was enormous swirling around the top of the reef which is only about six to eight feet below the surface it was treacherous and we realised we couldn't dive in that. So we anchored further away from it, dropped the anchor, 
for our first dive on the Wellstone. So the idea was to search, first of all, for possible wreckage. We knew the city of Westminster was there, but exactly where it was another issue. And we also thought with a 6,000 tonne ship, if we could find it, it should be rich pickings for salvage, of course. But we weren't sure about the depth, because the depth on our echo sounder on our photograph varied from 70 feet to 120 and even deeper in places. So we weren't sure exactly where the city of Westminster was. The only alternative was to dive and find it. And that was our first uh, dive on the stone. I call it the stone because that's the abbreviation which local fishermen give it. It's not just a runnel stone. She's known as the stone, probably because it's a, a more hazardous name and has an awful reputation. And local fishermen say, always keep clear of the stone because it's a dangerous area. So on this particular first dive to search for the wreckage, uh, we decided to dive it together for the simple reason that we hoped that we calculated the tide right and we would be diving in slack water. And Raymond and I dived together. And uh, so we went over together and over the, over the boat side of the aquanaut and stuck together as close as we could and soon realised that we were in slack water. We calculated exactly right. And um, that was a great relief relief to us. We weren't being swept away by an eight-knot current. So we made our way to the bow of the boat, grabbed hold of the anchor line, and pulled ourselves down hand over hand, and we got down to about 60 and then 70 feet. Well, I might say, the underwater topography was absolutely fantastic. Huge pinnacles of rocks, great valleys of rock, and uh, the visibility of that day, looking straight ahead and looking back up, was a good 25, 30 feet. It was amazing. I'll never forget this dive. And, uh, but we had no sight of any wreckage. So we kept swimming along at about 70 feet, looking down below us, which was deeper. And then suddenly we found ourselves in a most peculiar situation. Raymond grabbed hold of my arm and pointed, and then I couldn't believe my eyes, because coming towards us at a steady pace, it seemed, was a whole wall of silver. It was like a, a sheet of silver paper coming towards us, and I couldn't figure out what this was. And then we suddenly realised it was a massive shoal of fish. It was so huge. And they got so close to us, they completely surrounded us and swamped us. And it was clear to see for anybody who knew anything about Cornish fish that they were red mullet and with their red eyes and tails. And this wall of silver, we were down on the dive for a good 35 minutes. And I can tell you, uh, the whole of this time, we were passed by this massive wall, this sheet of silver passing us in an endless flow of silver. I've never seen anything like it in my life, and I don't think I'll ever see it again. There must have been thousands and thousands of red mullet passing us at that time. What a sight of nature. I never knew that there were such, could be such quantities. And of course, whether they were swimming around us 
in a perpetual circle, or there was one massive shoal of fish continually passing us for nearly 30 minutes, I shall never know, because with so many fish around us, we got completely disorientated and couldn't see exactly where we were. All we could see was these silver fish. And of course, then it was time to abandon the dive. We were running out of air. We had to surface. And fortunately, we surfaced not too far from the boat. And we were just able to swim back to the boat, to Aquanaut, and before we soon realised that the tide was turning and we were beginning to go faster than we were swimming. And I remember Raymond turning to me and indicating that we were being carried by the tide, not by our flippers. And we were being carried back straight to Aquanaut, where we left it 30 minutes before. We were able to grab the anchor rope and uh, swim along to the ladder on the side of Aquanaut, take our flippers off and climb back onto the boat safely. So we calculated the tide right, but only just in time before the tide turned. If we surfaced when the tide was still running, we probably would have been taken past Aquanaut back into Mounts Bay, about 10 miles away. <laughs> so uh, we realised that it was a dangerous place to dive. But that was our first dive on Wellstone, looking for wrecks. And it was interrupted by this huge wall of silver, which I will never forget. And as I said just now, I don't think I'll ever see such a wonderful sight of nature again. My next episode will be a dive on the Rundlestone for the next Navy diver, finding a cannon and diving on the city of Westminster. And then something which I will never forget and only can go down as a day to remember. <laughs>